Are you creative? That's a rhetorical question, because of course you are. A creative is anyone who makes something from nothing. Creativity is everywhere and in everyone. And that means you. So what's been stopping your inner creative from bursting out? Probably fear. Fear is part of creating something. It's a real bee. But don't worry, we'll help you get through that. This podcast will be your guide to claim your creativity, redefine your relationship with fear, and build a new life centered around creative expression. You're going to learn tools from people who have found ways to manage life's ups and downs by turning their experience into purpose. Think of this podcast as your very own creative community. This is Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. We'll get to the creative check-in in just a moment, but first, I have a little announcement. The Creative of the Week segment, which is the time when I give a creative listener a shout-out, is now moving to the end of the episode, because I like to save the best for last. So stay tuned for that at the very end of the show. It's after the outro, and there's an amazing one this week, all about female empowerment and really cute designs. And now to the creative check-in. Today's is don't get wrapped up in feeling sorry for yourself. And this thought came about this week at my job when I was producing an interview with an amazing singer-songwriter called LP. And she was talking about the fact that before she had her hit song, Lost on You, in her late 30s, she had been with seven different record labels, many of them she was dropped from. And she said that a key to not giving up and to getting where she is now was not feeling sorry for herself when music broke her heart. And that was a big mirror for me. <laughs> I I really realized in that moment that this has been a big issue of mine in Los Angeles and in my creative journey. And I think after every creative heartbreak I've had, there's been a prolonged period of, why me? I'm a good person. I don't deserve this. I work hard. I have talent. Why did God put this in my heart if I can't have it? And that's all wrong. First of all, when you're putting out those victim mentality thoughts, you're drawing more of that to you. The other thing is, it takes you away from the very thing you love. When you're in a state of self-pity, the last thing you want to do is create. All you want to do is go down your spiral of doom into crying and pounding the ground and asking why. And You know, it doesn't get you anywhere. Like I said, you can get so wrapped up in being a victim that you forget about the pure love of your goal. So I'm really going to start working on this because even when I am a very positive person, but I do live in extremes. So it's like in the same day, and actually it happened that literal day. I think I woke up that morning and I was like, I'm amazing. I can achieve anything. I'm doing so many great things. I'm so proud of my work. And by midday spiral to, I've never done anything in my life. How dare I have the nerve to think that I can achieve my dreams? Wow, you're such a screw up. You haven't done anything you've set out to do. So it's like, you know, staying in the positive place that I know is actually beneficial and more true than the negative self-pity place. And it was such a good mirror for me because even though I've come a long way from that and I don't do it nearly as much as I did in my younger years of creativity, it's still a crutch for me. So 
I'm going to start focusing on gratitude more because I think that's a really good place to be to keep you out of this wallowing, sorry for yourself mentality. I'm going to focus on the love of what I do and focus on the goal and, and, you know, the journey as we've talked about, because those are really the only things you control and staying in the positive mindset, staying in the love, that's what helps you get closer. So instead of wallowing in that victimhood after a creative heartbreak, let yourself cry for a while, pick yourself up off the ground, evaluate, learn the lessons that need to be learned, then get back to the love. You got to be grateful that you have a passion that you feel this deeply about. Take the lesson, leave the negativity, go toward the love. Okay, now to the guest. Kurt Yeager is an actor, writer, producer, inclusion advocate, and former professional X-game athlete, best known for his work on Sons of Anarchy, NCIS New Orleans and Los Angeles, The Village, and Shameless. Kurt's creative journey started up in the Bay Area, where he made his mark as a professional BMX rider. Ever the chameleon, he then decided to challenge himself by rerouting and going out for his master's in hydrogeology at San Francisco State. It was during this time that his life changed forever. One night, he was riding his motorcycle home when he took a corner, hit a guardrail, a pole, and fell off a 40-foot embankment. He woke up with many injuries, including a seriously injured leg, which ended up having to be amputated below the knee. However, this incredible trauma also turned into the inciting incident of his greatest creativity. Not only did Kurt learn to walk, ride a bike, and a motorcycle again, and he even competed in BMX again. He also created a whole new career for himself as a professional actor. For me, present work is harder than the long, dreamy goals. Because, like, it's hard to sit down and commit however many hours it is to that one task right now when you know there's 400 other things that are also going to get you to that goal. That all have to get done. But if you don't focus on the thing right in front of you, nothing can get done. I wanted to have Kurt on the show because he has a moving story of persistence, reinvention, the power of patience, and even impatience, and the incredible success and unshakable belief in yourself can produce. From our conversation, you'll learn how to cultivate patience, make fair your bitch, quell anxiety, why it's so important to get people with disabilities both in front of and behind the camera, why style is key to success, and how to stay mentally and emotionally healthy when working long hours. Now here he is, Kurt Yeager. You have an incredible story. And a story that's been so deeply affected by creativity and perseverance and pushing through fear. And so I wondered if we could start basically at the inciting incident of a lot of your creativity, which was your accident. And you were in a motorcycle accident Mm -hmm. and you lost part of your leg in that accident. And you really, I mean, you had to push through so many different obstacles, but you're on the other side today and just have this amazing career and have been such an inspiration to so many people. And, but I was wondering if you could walk me through your accident and how you started to recover from it. Yeah, I, I had a really bad motorcycle accident where I ripped off my left leg, broke my pelvis in half, tore my bladder in half, broke seven vertebrae, collapsed my lungs, all my right ribs, concussion, ACL, MCL. I spent three months in the hospital, 27 surgeries while I was there. And, you know, it took time to figure out how to push through that. But 
it was a stage of things that led to that. So I had, I grew up in a rough neighborhood, so I learned how to push through, you know, having mm-hmm. to deal with ruffians um, and got into a lot of fist fights with a lot of people. Then I got out and was surrounded by people of a higher intellectual capacity. So I had to fight my way through that. What books do they read? You know, are they going out partying on Friday night? Or are they sitting home reading Thurdides or Herodotus? You know what mm. I mean? Are they reading Euclid? My what favorite, are they, right? Currently. Yeah, oh, so good Friday nights. <laughs> but what are they reading? So it made me go, okay, what Brown, Harvard, Yale, what are those people having to read as part of their curriculum? I'm going to read all of their curriculum. Because so you're could, studying archaeology at that point, right? Um, no, at that time, I was actually still a professional athlete. Oh, okay. I rode BMX and the X Games. And so I was the, you know, double flips over 40 foot jumps, stuff like that. No and, big deal. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> and so while I was doing that, I was meeting a bunch of people that I wasn't connecting with, you know, like intellectually, mm-hmm. like I wasn't there. I wasn't, they were older than me, but I still felt, wait a minute, what am I missing? Like, how do you, how do you read well? Like what's, I didn't have a good lexicon. Like mm-hmm. I didn't understand words as bad, as good as I should have. And I was like, okay, I need to do this. So I started working on all of that. That's what led me to get my master's in hydrogeology. Like I was like, oh, okay, I could, I can tap into this. This is these are my people too. Mm-hmm. But I had street smarts, so I kind of developed something they didn't. Then the accident happened while I was actually working on my master's in hydrogeology, and after that, I got into you know acting full time. The aspect of it that was actually my breakthrough in terms of creativity was now emotional growth. So I had physical growth in the beginning, intellectual growth in the middle, and towards the latter part so far, emotional growth. Like, now I need to be open. Like, I can be a a guy's guy and cry. It's okay. I can be a guy's guy and put out my writing and have people ridicule it and not offend my ego enough to where I'm not going to write again. You know, it just got to that stage where... Now, you know, I've I've learned and I'm still learning the emotional intelligence, the emotional maturity. I'm still pretty stupid. <laughs> it's, I would disagree. Uh, in in that capacity, <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. Like and that's But I that's mean, lifelong for everyone, you know, and I think it's admirable for a guy that came from a culture that didn't support that to go on this journey. And you've talked a lot about how acting has opened you up to vulnerability because you could be vulnerable as a character when you didn't feel like you could be like that in real life. And so I'm wondering where you are now with your journey toward vulnerability and what's your advice for other people who are also feeling a little bit shy to open up their heart cavity? Yeah. I mean, one thing that my father told me that never stuck and I mean, stuck, but never really resonated until later was it's better to be hated for who you are than loved for who you aren't. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really self-discovery and then telling everybody about it. The more you tell everybody who you are, the more you realize how much of a bullshitter you are. <laughs> and then you'll realize, wait, no, that was bullshit. No, I kind of embellished that. And then you start going like, well, everyone's just accepting me. Let me not embellish this time. And then you don't this time. And they still accept you. And you realize it's you're just fine the way you are. But that only comes through truth and openness. Like that's basically what it boils down to. If you're not telling people, like, you know, I'm dating right now. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not going out and saying, this is what I want, this is who I am, it's okay that they don't like me and it was only one first date. Right. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. It's just not what I want right now. And that only comes from forthcomingness in terms of actually telling people what you think. 
how can you know who they are or who you are if you're only meeting each other's representative? Now that relies. Oh, I like that. Tell me yeah. where the representative comes from. Well, you know, like yeah. if we if we meet and I'm like, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Kurt Yeager, pleasure. And you're like, hi, I'm Lauren. I'm hanging out. You know, and I'm like, great. And we and we meet each other and we go about each other's business. Yeah. Everything was yes and positive and everything else, but it wasn't authentic. Mm-hmm. It wasn't real. Like I didn't go. You know, how you doing today? I'm shit. I'm having a shit day because my friend's having a hard time and his marriage is struggling. And I just was thinking about it. And he was like, most people were like, oh, I don't know what to say. Because no one talks. No right. one's authentic. So. We're all pretty good. How are you? Right. <laughs> I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Fantastic. And so we all have this veneer, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of hides that inner kid. Pain. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and instead of just being like, look, I just, I'm having a shit day. Well, guess what? I just got it out. I had someone listen to me. They, now I felt listened to, so now I want to listen and help them. And when you start putting yourself in that position and everyone starts doing it, all of a sudden everyone's willing to tell everyone the truth and help each other. Now that can relate to life stuff, emotional stuff, struggles, creativity. You put your music out there, you put your writing out there, you put your art, you put, you know, your engineering plans. It may not be art per se, but that's still creative. Yeah. So you put, you know, a new methodology for how you're going to be a CPA. You got to put it out there just as risky as anybody else who sings. So it's like really kind of opening up yourself to being like, it's okay to be wrong and make mistakes. And all of a sudden you're in a place where your work is being evaluated correctly, not through the lens of your fear or ego trying to be too big mm-hmm. you know and then all of a sudden you can evaluate its its true worth and grow so you've had to get through a lot of fear in your life everybody does i think in order to be an authentic person and live the life that we are capable of what's your advice for people who are stunted by fear and trying to push through it i think that fear is like a giant dragon behind your back you can't see it you don't want to look at it it's this thing you're not dealing with and the second you say how, how much can we curse can we curse all the way oh as much yeah. as you want the second you go fuck it you turn around to face that demon the dragon the little thing there is kind of this wimpy little thing that isn't as big as you thought it was you know and like mm-hmm. I mean, I still have fear. So, you oh, know. yeah. You're alive. Like, <laughs> if I have three drinks in me, I can definitely sing karaoke. But if I was actually going to put something on tape that I wrote, ooh, I don't know yet. So I, ha- So knowing that about me means that I have to do it. So you have to do the things you're afraid of. Like, if you're afraid of snakes, okay, well, then play with snakes. Wait, wait. You won't be you you won't be afraid of them anymore. Doesn't mean you're gonna love them. But how do you get yourself to the place where you're willing to go for it? Because it's one thing to say, okay, go play with a snake, but like do yeah. you have to like mental jujitsu yourself into getting in the snake pin? Yes. Is there a snake pin? I don't know. Yeah, Is there's a totally thing? a snake pin. <laughs> there's like you know, there's a place over in Burbank, it's called yeah. the snake pin. Can't you know, wait. you can drink and, and dan- play with snakes. Play with snakes. No, I was kidding. Um, <laughs> but what it is is I think it's a practiced art. The more you do it, the more you realize it's the only way to fight fear. It's the only way to overcome yourself. It's the only way to not be subjugated to, you know, the prison of fear, Mm -hmm. right? So, but that only comes from practice. I mean, the first time you do anything, it's horrifying. 
whether physically, mentally, emotionally. First time a baby tries to walk, it doesn't really do it too well. Not the 10th time, not the 30th time, but eventually it gets the hang of it. So you can only know that facing fear is the only way to go about it by starting to face fear. So you might be the person that jumps in feet first. Well, then go face a big fear and do it. And you see people like that. Then there's other ones who are facing little fears a little bit at a time. And then there's other people that are facing medium fears. But not facing it, it literally begets more fear. Right. So it's kind of like know yourself, almost train yourself, stair-step yourself up to facing the thing that you're ultimately most afraid of, and then just go for it. Yeah. Okay. That's a good methodology. You talk about basically what I like to call the art of being bad at something. You talked about that just now with the baby, you know, like babies suck at walking. Mm -hmm. Sorry, babies, but you do. Yeah. Screw you, babies. <laughs> and then they learn how to do it eventually. But as we get older, we forget that there is that trajectory of sucking for a while mm -hmm. until you're highly skilled at it like you are with the other things in your life. Yeah. So to take it back to what you've overcome, I mean, you had to literally reteach yourself everything pretty much, but especially how to walk, how to get on a bike again. Mm -hmm. How did you, first of all, just in general, get through that? But second of all, I struggle with patience a lot, so I'm fascinated by people who have it, mm -hmm. and I want to learn from you. How did you keep the patience and, and focus on the faith in that moment of absolute hardship? Yeah, patience is a very dynamic thing to ask for. If you're mm -hmm. like, I need more patience, then all of a sudden you're going to get a lot of things to be patient about. You know what uh -oh. I mean? Like, so you uh -oh. really, yeah, you really got to be careful what you ask for. Okay. <laughs> I I think to to the first question, how, how you get through something like that and how you relearn, I think that is part of the learned practice. I don't think I could have gotten through it unless I had practiced that beforehand. You know, how do I all of a sudden missing a limb, know how to adjust my prosthetic leg to make it work for me. Well, I had to have some, you know, mechanical understanding of bicycles and motorcycles and mm -hmm. things first and how to apply them and understand physics from a physical perspective, you know, doing flips over jumps or tricks and stuff like that made me go, okay, if I lean this way on the prosthetic leg and it hurts on the left side, the pressure's probably coming from the right side. So if I cut this little area out, then maybe it'll... Nope, that didn't work. You know, and it's not that I'm like, oh, it didn't work. It's okay. Let me try again. It's like, no, fuck this fucking leg. Damn it. Let me bash a couple things, get upset, be angry. <sighs> okay, I got that out. You got that out of your system, Kurt? Yeah, okay, get back to it. You know, like, for me, it was easier to get upset and frustrated and then go back to it as opposed to get down on myself and go, I'll never do this and then just quit mm -hmm. you know i'd rather use anger be angry and then bypass it and then get back to it but patience i don't even really know what that word means <laughs> I, I am not a patient person so your impatience I actually served you in 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 that instance in that well it does i mean you you know i'm a thrower of things so like i definitely like if i'm frustrated with something like i'll throw a tool Sometimes the tool goes through a cabinet and you're like, oh, yeah. oh shit, I broke the cabinet. Damn it. I just made the problem so much fucking worse. You know what I mean? And that happens. Uh, but at the same time, it's like you realize it didn't help anything and you have to just go through your method but evaluate it mm -hmm. while you're doing it. 
there there's impatience and then there's patience. And I think you can be impatient with something that isn't right, isn't working, isn't going the right way. But you have to be patient enough to ask the questions about it and evaluate. And I don't think maybe it's not even the word patience. Maybe it's just taking the time to look back on what went wrong and mm. being like, let me evaluate where the mistakes truly were. Like for former relationships, for instance, the common denominator of all of my previous failed relationships are me. The, it doesn't matter what they did. I'm at some capacity the common denominator. So where were my flaws? Was it in choosing the partner? Was it in my reaction to my partner's flaws? Was it my flaws lopped onto my partner's head that I ran from emotionally? Was it, you know, you start like really having to evaluate that. Now, if you do that with every single thing, you should slowly improve. Whether you make perfection or not is a different question. But I think that it's that patience of taking moments to sit down, think about it, write it down, ask your friends, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? Whether it's acting, writing, producing, um, woodwork, relationships, your Definitely pursuit woodwork into this. Me. Yeah, woodwork, yeah. <laughs> you know, turtle care. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, what, whatever there is, you know. Yeah. You have to go, what went wrong? I mean, if you're in the business and you keep making the same product and it's only selling something, if you don't do any market research, if you don't ask people what it's about, then how can you improve it? Why is it okay for probably 95% of everyone listening to this podcast, they think, you know, I'm going to evaluate my work. I'm going to see where I'm at. I'm going to show people my resume. I'm going to take this product. And they do all of it, you know, the self-evaluation for like an outside perspective of the stuff. But they never turn it around and focus it on their emotional or spiritual well-being. They don't look at it. Think of it as a product. Think of it as like a tangible entity that you're going like, well, when I said this to her in my relationship, I was really upset. She made me upset. Yes, but why did you get upset? Trigger. Right? But the trigger <laughs> is like, is it something that I didn't get when I was seven years old from my mom because she wasn't there? And so what I'm trying to do is make up for that in my relationship. And by that, I'm forcing her to behave in a manner that she's not going to behave because she grew up where she did get that. So it doesn't even make sense that it's missing in some other human because it's perfectly exemplified in her. Yeah. And wow. you're like, fuck, how do I do? <laughs> right? Like, you're yeah. like, you're like, or she was just a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> One of the two. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe it's a little of both. And exactly. It usually is. And it's usually not black and white. Mm -hmm. It's not binary. I know. Oh my gosh. There's so much I want to break down right now from what you just said. One, I love that you're doing this deep inner work because it's so necessary and beautiful. Thank you. Um, I'm also on that journey in therapy and it's like mm -hmm. the best thing on earth. Two, so here's the, the issue though. I'm totally getting what you're saying, but I panic in that moment where it's like, I have the goal. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I have the goal. And then there's the middle area where you're like, will I ever get to the goal? Right. Will it ever happen? Will it ever happen? And then eventually you get to the goal. But how do you not panic in that middle area? Well, is, it, is, it, is it panic that showcases itself in procrastination? Does it showcase itself in not doing all the job? 
that you could do. So maybe you're only going after B level work because you're like, if I don't put my heart and soul into this because of fear, then maybe when it doesn't quite do as well as it probably won't do, I won't be less hurt later. So you're self-protecting in a fear-based world. Is it that your panic is just anxiety? Mm-hmm. And anxiety isn't something everyone's like, that's the end result. No, that's the beginning. If you can identify it as anxiety, anxiety literally is the difference between the way it is and the way you want it to be. The greater that distance, the greater the anxiety. Yeah, that's it, I think, for so, me. So then mm-hmm. you have to evaluate if your expectations are too high and they can be like if you're like i'm gonna do this and that's my goal and it's way the fuck down that road you like that's 10 years down the road there's all these little baby steps you have to make in between so let me back my goal up to a closer goal like let me just get 20 episodes of the show written Mm -hmm. let me just write one episode of the show let me just write 10 pages of the show. Let me just write a one-page synopsis. Let me just think about what my main character is. Let me think about what my main character's name is. Is it a guy or a girl? Now you're starting at the beginning. Now there's no anxiety. It's so true, though, because I think it's like when we do focus on those epic goals, the goal that you need to really focus on is really what's right in front of you. Because that's all – I mean, I've done like podcasts about this before, but it's all part of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think we can often think that the path is just for me, like whenever someone would say like, it's about the journey, I'd be like, fuck you. It's not right. about the journey. It's about the destination. Yeah. No one likes walking <laughs> through the desert. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, oh, that was fun. Yeah. yeah. That was, no, it's horrible. No one likes working out. Everyone likes when working out is over. Right. And when you get those yeah. abs, honey buns. Right. <laughs> I always look in the mirror right after work and I'm like, am I thin yet? This is perfect. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's such a good method. I appreciate that. And it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. forgo the long distance thinking. You have to have a goal. Right. But then you have to- Don't be obsessed with it. Yeah. You have to back it up to like present stuff. Like for me, present work is harder than the long dreamy goals Mm -hmm. because like it's hard to sit down and commit however many hours it is to that one task right now when you know there's 400 other things that are also going to get you to that goal. That all have to get done. But if you don't like be present and focus on the thing right in front of you, nothing can get done. So it's really about being hyper aware that you're going to limit your thinking from large dreamy goals to tangible short goals. And don't worry about it. In two hours, you're going to go back to dreaming big goals again. Instead of trying to be just one thing or another. Literally being like the tide. It comes in and it goes out. It comes in and it goes out. You have to ebb and flow along with it. So sometimes you're going to be really, really tight and you're pushing up the hill. And other times you're going to relax and go downhill. You know, it's like the difference between, you know, what most people do is they seem to expand themselves so much that they become unable to make a movement of any direction, right? They have no ability to strike out so a rattlesnake for instance can't strike you if it's not coiled up well it has to recoil to to strike you so if you're only going out 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 out, go 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 and you're never taking the time to evaluate pull it back in let's look at it let's let's flow back out to see okay now i'm back out to see 
Now I'm recoiled. Okay, I'm going to come back in now, and I'm going to come back in hard. And then the same way a rattlesnake can strike out. I mean, I think that is both intellectual maturity and emotional maturity. Knowing that intellectually you can go for a goal and try it. And then emotional maturity is evaluating what happened and taking note of it, giving a spa day, right? Mm -hmm. And then being, okay, fuck it. Let's do it again. And I think that rhythm is Mm -hmm. where I think you start getting real success. Going back to your success a little bit, you went from that accident and the trauma of that to walking again, to riding a bike again, to acting and cultivating this incredibly successful acting career. So can you take me through that journey a little bit and how you got there? I mean, that's that's a big question because I yeah, think I'm is. still on that journey, you know? It's just, it's just little stages. I don't even know how to describe it. It's mm-hmm. like there's big goals that I want, you know? Okay, if I say I want to be an actor, writer, producer with my own show and, you know, multi-series regulars and doing this kind of a thing, what does it take to get there? And you slowly back it up to, okay, I have one leg. I'm just getting out of a wheelchair. I have my first prosthetic limb. My leg's on fire. It's killing me. What's going to make my leg hurt less? Quitting or pushing it as far as I can and then taking a break. So you have to build up the strength, build up something to get there. So with my prosthetic leg, I had to build up the residual limbs strength. So I'd push as far as I could and then take a break. Two days off. I wouldn't wear it. And then I'd go back to, listen, now let's go for a mile jog. Let's go for a four-mile jog. Let's do eight miles. Oh, that was too far. Now I know where the limit is. So learning that, becoming an actor full-time, I had to evaluate not only what I was doing in my career, but what people who could advance my career needed from an actor. Not from me, just from any actor. They needed material. They needed tape. They needed to see that you have a product that is viable. So I went and got every single job I could where basically I was paying to be on set. You know, like someone's like, yeah, I got a Craigslist showing, and, you know, <laughs> and we're going to make this short film and it's, you know, a two hour drive in San Jose. I was living in San Francisco at the time. It's in San Jose, you know, and it's got to be here at four in the morning. And you're like, all right, so now. You, you you drive and you pay your own fuel to get there on a work day, so you're not making money at work. And you're paying for your own, you know, gas to get all the way there. And then you pay for your own lunch and your own breakfast and everything else. And then you get on set and you do your thing and then you drive all the way home. And you're like, man, I just spent, you know, $100 to work today. But then you got tape. And so it was slight investment in your own self. And then you're like, okay, now an agent wants to see me because of my tape. So then you're like, all right, now what makes me more valuable? Well, I'll give everyone a little secret. In acting, Hollywood, it's about popularity and like other people's evaluation of you that gives you value, not you saying I'm a good actor. So I ended up actually you know, creating opportunities for myself in the media by becoming media and telling people that this person, you know, Let's say my name was Doug Johnson at Variety. Uh Well, there's no Doug Johnson at Variety. But if I write an email from Doug Johnson at Variety to someone else at Variety, they're going to (laughs) listen. That's amazing. Yeah. So at what point in your career did you start doing that? The very beginning. Really? 
Okay. So, so did, did you do that with like a Gmail email? How did you approach it? I'm not going to give you all no, the no. details. I, I think that we need this though because yeah. people, this is like a good insider tip for yeah. whatever industry they want to get exactly. into. If they don't have the footing, how they can make themselves seem more legit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's basically thinking about what a colleague would say to you in an email that would pique your interest. So you have to become your best advocate without being beggy. If your boss was to say what's good about you to someone else where you're looking for work, then that's going to appear different than you saying you're good at it because it's about Mm -hmm. style. So it's about making people look at your stuff. It's not about trying to prove to them that you're good. They're going to evaluate that answer for themselves. But it's about making people just look. So, for instance, I got taught this at a young age when I was looking for a BMX sponsor. I was going up to other athletes. How do I get to your brands? How do I get to your brands? And they're like, yeah, I'm not going to help you out because you're my competition. I didn't realize that. Then going to the brands and saying, hey, I want I want you to, you know, I could do a flip over a jump and I'm really good and you should sponsor me. And they're like, that's great, kid. There's mm-hmm. a lot of kids who can do that. And then someone said, look, it's about style. And I said, what do you mean? And they told me to say this thing that I'm about to tell you. This is what I was told. So I saw a branding guy over there, and I walked over to him and said, hey, how you doing, Mike? Pleasure to meet you. My name is Kurt Yeager. I ride BMX. Oh, nice to meet you. Are you going to be at the contest tomorrow? Yeah. Here's my card. I want you to watch me. I'm going to win. Have a good day. And walk away. Guess what? Next day I went to the contest, and I got fourth didn't matter what did he do he watched me so he liked the style i got him to watch me he liked my style and then said yeah let's sponsor this kid didn't matter that i didn't win i got him to look and that was the first stage of making someone vested so in terms of like i guess you know going back to like getting your work noticed and things like that. I think it's about style. It's about how you frame it. You're not begging people to approve you. Mm -hmm. You should be begging people to have a look. Their approval is on them. You can't change that. How are you ballsy enough though to say like, did you honestly believe you were going to win or did it not matter to you? You just wanted to tell them you were good and to get there. Yeah, it didn't matter. Okay. It totally doesn't matter. Okay, I'll give you a for instance. I was on Sons of Anarchy. I met Kurt Sutter. I wanted to get on that show really, really bad. And I reached out to the producers. No answer. I reached out to casting. No answer. I reached out to everybody I knew. No answer. There was Kurt Sutter at a party. And I'm looking at him. And he's over there. And I'm over here. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Kurt Sutter. (laughs) Okay, Kurt Sutter's a hard ass. But he's not an idiot. And he's not mean. He's just... No nonsense. And I love that about people. So I went, all right, <clears throat> here's your moment. Walked up to him. I go, hey, Kurt. He's like, yeah, nice to meet you. I'm like, my name's Kurt Yeager. Just want to say you really captured the Northern California motorcycle clubs really, really well. Like I, I'm from there and I was, you've done a really good job. You know, even down to the guys wearing sneakers, and not, you know, motorcycle boots because it's what NorCal does. He's like, oh, thanks, man. I'm like, absolutely. You're just missing one thing. And he looks at me and goes, yeah. And I go, well, look, every single club has a guy go down and rip his leg off. Check this out. I pull up my pant leg and show him my prosthetic leg. 
And he just gets wide-eyed like, holy shit. And then I go, here's my card. I'm not going to tell you how good of an actor I am, but I can ride motorcycles better than all your actors. Have a good day. <laughs> and I wandered off. And I didn't say any more to him. I didn't beg. I didn't say, look at my work. I didn't say, please, I'm a good actor. You know, I could do this for you. Like, it was literally a statement of fact. And it should be a fact that you're presenting. Because if you're stating an opinion, it's irrelevant. But if I state it, I'm better than all of your actors on motorcycles. One, that could be considered an opinion. Except I am. I've been riding since I was three years old. So I already know I am. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And, it, and even if you're really, really good, it doesn't matter. I've already, I've already, I've already won that argument. So then he's going to go and do what? Because I was cocky. He's going to go look at my reel, which is really what I want him to do. Well, you also said something about his show that would have made him go, hmm. Exactly. Because you stated something that was true currently about his show. You stated something the show lacked. Then you told him about yourself and that you were the missing piece. Yeah. And I allowed him that that in totality is mm-hmm. a call to action. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Great salesman. That, but that it was <laughs> but it's also like a good salesman believing that you're right. Mm-hmm. Now, the only way you can truly believe you're right is if you've done a lot of self-evaluation to see if that would be a good character on the show in this particular case. So if I think that diversity is going to be good for your show, then I'll tell you in in the strongest manner possible. But if I don't, then I won't. Like a guy missing a leg right now on like a popular cop show would be brilliant, right? But I'm not going to pitch myself as a guy missing a leg on Modern Family. It doesn't fit the comedy, the genre. Like I could be a neighbor, a sub-character, but I'm never going to be a lead on it because the leads are the leads. So why pitch into the wind? Because of what I want versus the way it is. So I think that's a big thing is understanding how to do both at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, be pragmatic enough to understand the way it is, but be hopeful enough to go after the way it could be. You talk a lot about how actors with disabilities should be playing characters with disabilities and able-bodied people should not be mm-hmm. taking those roles until people with disabilities are considered for those same roles. Right. So can you kind of go into that and where you feel like we're at with it right now in the industry and what we can do to help change it? Yeah, it's kind of difficult because, you know, like everyone wants to say it's just art, but it's it, not. It's not because you wouldn't do blackface. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So people with disabilities are considered not authentic enough to be considered, you know what I mean? Like you wouldn't do blackface, meaning you wouldn't have a white guy play a black guy or vice versa, Mm -hmm. you know? So why is disability still in that, you know, good actor? Oh, you won an Emmy or an Oscar because you played a guy convincingly who was disabled, you know? Is it is it because the people inherently think that disabled people can't can't do the job, can't do the acting, can't do things in real life, need a helping hand, need this, that, and the other? Sometimes, yeah, people need help as a disabled person, and sometimes able-bodied people need help from someone who's a problem solver who happens to be disabled because all disabled people are problem solvers by nature because they're always dealing with ableists. But what is what does that mean? What is an ableist? It's just someone who takes their abilities for granted. Oh. So think of it this way. I give you the perfect example of me being an ableist. Before my accident, the person I was with would always ask me to bring up the laundry 
big heavy load of laundry. And I was like, oh, come on, just bring it up. You can do it. It's laundry. Well, you know, I was 5'11", 210 pounds, no fat, you know, like strong. I didn't understand that she was 130 pounds and that was heavy. It wasn't until after I had lost my leg and lost 60 pounds in the hospital when I went to carry that same stupid piece of laundry up the stairs that I was like, this is heavy. I was top 1% of physical capabilities as a pro athlete. So everything came easy to me. I didn't realize that things were hard for other people. And it wasn't until the accident that I realized it. So you don't know, and it's okay that people don't know. But being ableist is just being like, well, yeah, just, just... Just do it. Just do it's it. Fine. But it's also assuming that anyone else can't. You know, like, and it's a it's fear-based. It's like if you see someone in a wheelchair at a grocery store, you're like, oh, that's cool. They're out. You're like, what else are they going to do? <laughs> they're, at the, they're, they're buying bananas. Like, they have to buy bananas. They have to buy food. Of course they do. So it's not cool. But you're thinking it's awesome that they're out and doing it because you subtextually think, man, if I was in a wheelchair, I couldn't do it. Yeah, you could because you'd have to. And that's just the way it is. So it's like you, you kind of place your own fear on top of somebody else's existence and then behave towards them. And well, how am I supposed to behave? Well, treat them like a human first. Because a wheelchair isn't, you know, a character trait. It's not a part of who they are. It's a mode of transportation. Your feet are your mode of transportation. Theirs happens to be wheels. That's the only difference between you and them. Like, most people don't realize that most men and women in a wheelchair can have sex because sexual organs are on a different, you know, line of uh, nerves. It's the same thing. So, in terms of, like, acting, it's difficult because actors with disabilities aren't reading for roles that aren't for them specifically. So, if you said doctor, lawyer, executive, Wall Street, you know, hustler, and you said, oh, no, we don't want to see black people for that because that's not what they do. You would be like, are you fucking insane? So imagine saying that, no, a wheelchair user can't be a Wall Street guy. Um, Yeah, we had a president who was a wheelchair user, you know, FDR. Okay, well, I mean, you can't have a a wheelchair user be a scientist because, I mean, how would they? Yeah, we have that guy, Stephen Hawking. Well, he passed, but... You know, and oh, well, we can't have a doctor who's a yes, we do. He's a little person, you know, and you start going into it, and you realize, holy shit, I'm just biased. Like, I don't realize it. So, the casting process is very difficult. It's very short. It's very tight. And uh, it's a funneling system. There's only a few people who can get in, anyways. So, there's a lot of difficulties to it. But the reason why people who are able-bodied shouldn't play disabled roles right now is because disabled people aren't even getting in the room for that. So you got to start there. You know, I mean, we have in America alone, 57 million Americans have some form of a disability. That makes about 20% of the population. Right now, I think we're at what, like 4% unemployment? In the disabled community, 80% of everyone's unemployed. So you have a 76% ratio difference. And then on television, only 3% of characters on television have a disability. So you have 20% in the population, but only 3% on television that are characters with disabilities. And the punch in the face is 
of that 3% of characters on TV, 95% of those characters are played by able-bodied people. So you're just, just proving it through art on television, which impacts society, that people with disabilities can't do it. So all the employers, all the CEOs go home and watch TV and see that reinforced day in and day out. Oh, yeah, that guy wasn't really disabled. I seen him in another show where he was running. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a nice story. Yeah, he couldn't do that. Yeah, over and over and over. And then everyone else isn't disabled in normal roles that they could be, like a professional doctor, lawyer, sports fan, whatever, you know, guy in the background, guy at the bar. Mm-hmm. It's Human. Yeah. I mean, just let's not even talk about actors. Let's talk about background. If 20% of the population has a disability, then 20% of... You're seeing background people should be disabled at some capacity. I mean, how many bars have you gone out to and you're hanging out and you see someone in a wheelchair and you're like, oh, cool. And you, yeah. don't, you don't think about it. But when you see it on TV, it's like, oh, people are going to need to know why that guy's there. And you're like, oh, yeah. fuck off. <laughs> so you see what I'm saying? So even from that perspective, it's like, shit. Well, how do we get a wheelchair user onto set? Well, new problem. ADA law. You already should have thought of that. It's illegal. Right. You start getting, you know what I mean? And you just start, it just gets so heavy, all the different nuances. So what can we do to help change the way things currently are? I think you either have a general public outcry and say, look, just this isn't going to happen until we have 10% actors with disabilities working in 20% of the roles that are being, you know, cast out there. Uh, Then all the able-bodied people can play disabled and you can go back and forth between them. Great. And then until that, there's going to be a public outcry where no one with a, who's a disabled character can be played by a non-disabled person. That's really all it is until you get enough people able to do it that you can break that back down and say, okay, now we can go back to just doing art. Or instead of a general public outcry, you do something that's the opposite, which is you go right to the top. You tell the showrunners, the creatives, uh, the current executives, the development executives, and the executives uh, uh, at the heads of studios and you say you're the only person that can make this change call me bring me in put me in your new show and i'll help you with every other show that you have to make it diverse as it relates to disabilities because i know every single actor with a disability i mean i don't know every one of them but (laughs) i know enough of them to where i could say here's 250 people at the different levels that I could do. And if you put me into that role, all of a sudden I'm holding the door open and creating the pipeline. I'm literally the conduit in which it flows. It doesn't matter if it's me. It just still has to be someone with a disability. But if NBC or CBS, I mean, I've been on like 11 CBS shows and like seven NBC shows. I've been on so many shows. And it's like, if you just said, look, fine, make me an executive of this particular thing, not of diversity, of literally in charge of casting, writing, producing this thing, and it's a new role, and we're just going to get these people in here, then I would quit acting for a couple years to do that. And I love acting. But it's not going to happen without somebody doing it. So I'm just proposing me, because why not? Good. And if it's somebody else, gives a shit. I didn't want the job anyways. <laughs> like, I like just acting. But like this, You're it's, like Bran on Game of Thrones. Right? Exactly. <laughs> It's like, ah, oh, crap. And it's always the person who doesn't want the power that does the best with power. Uh-huh. It's always the case. because They bring peace to the seven kingdoms. Exactly. Now six kingdoms. Right? Yeah, because they're all like... Spoiler alert. Oh, shit. Are you watching right now? What? 
Are you watching Game of Thrones right now? What do you mean? I don't know what you're saying. You're tricking me. You're too good of an actor. <laughs> Speaking of which, you are up for a potential Emmy nomination for NCIS New Orleans. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I am. Tell me about this. Yeah. This uh, is so cool. It's, it's I'm really cool. For you. So we did a huge episode. I'm in, you know, more than half of the entire episode where my character just goes through it. And it was a really daunting performance because it was all about like people with disabilities. Even the title of the show of that particular episode is called In Plain Sight. Because what it is, is just an episode about how people with disabilities are overlooked and not even paid attention to, so they can hide in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And it's like the storyline is that a character uses all these people with disabilities who are in different you know, law enforcement agencies and hides bugs in all of their equipment, knowing that they can bypass all the security screenings because no one really thinks that they're going to be capable of doing anything bad. Oh, no. Yeah, and so my character is also duped and then decides that he's going to be so pissed off about it that instead of just working with the NCIS people, he's also going to do some shit on the side. And he has to make a choice at the end, murder or not. And so it's really, really heavy and powerful. But we're heavily talking about, like, I'm coming back next season. Like, the one of the writers already said, yeah, I'm bringing you back. So I'm meeting with the showrunner and talking about maybe coming back in a larger capacity. But they're like, look, we killed off our last detective from the NOPD, so we want you to be the new one. So I'm like, all right. You know, so I'm probably going to go back for multiple episodes. But we're even talking now about maybe turning this into a spinoff show because of the Emmy. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so amazing. So if you're, you're a television academy member, vote, 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 vote. Kurt Yeager, Kurt Yeager, vote, vote, vote. Do it. <laughs> Kurt Yeager for president. I had a question for you. Uh-oh. I mean, I've had a lot of questions for you, but I have another. <laughs> so do you ever get people who are like, well, if he could do it, then why can't I do it with your story? And if so, does that sentiment annoy you? I get that a lot. It doesn't annoy me at all. And the reason it doesn't annoy me in particular is because a lot of people need a roadmap. They're not trailblazers. I happen to be. And the only reason I happen to be is because I'm hyper tenacious. Like you can bash me in the head and I'm just going to keep coming. It doesn't mean it's fun for me. I just keep doing it. But a lot of people just don't know how to face those fears. So they don't know how to come up with answers to hard questions because they can't really look inside of who they are. So they need an example. They need a guide. They need a friend. They need something that's going to show them at least a direction to travel. So it doesn't really bother me. I wish that people thought like me and just did their own thing and could do it. But it also, I think it just comes with the territory. You know, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of like looking at you going like, how'd you do it? And you're like, it's really just dumb, dumb, tenacious daily work. I'll film content in in another city or state like i spent five months filming two shows in new york last year and i was like oh how'd you enjoy new york and i'm like what do you mean (laughs) like what well you mean you were in new york you got to do stuff i'm like no i'd film three days on one show and three or four days on another show that's already seven days a week so it is a 16 hour a day job when you're that invested in a show and you don't get time off and all you are is in another place that you don't know anybody that you have no friends to just come over and hang out for 20 minutes because you need a break and all you're doing is working it's pretty brutal so how do you keep yourself mentally healthy and spiritually healthy when you're 
working that much? Alcohol. Really? No, no. Yeah. Whiskey. Uh, whiskey. <laughs> lots and lots of whiskey. Maybe my voice would be like this if Ooh. I talked all the time. Oh, oh whiskey wait. man. <laughs> I, 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 I still am working on that because I burn out. Mm-hmm. I just burn out, you know? Like, yeah. I, I, I'm looking for love. I'm looking for someone to take some of that load off. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. Um, go to counseling. You know, I have, I, in the last couple of months, I haven't gone lately, but I went for two and a half years straight to a really bad, a really good guy who's a total badass. And I'm actually trying to go to another counselor soon by my friend's suggestion, just to mix it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, I, I, I do self-evaluation, self-help. And then I have two best friends who know everything about me. And I tell them everything. And I mean everything. The dark stuff. The stuff that happened when I was a kid. The stuff that I did bad when I was a youth. The stuff I've done bad. When I'm like in a relationship and I said certain things. I'm not hiding that. Literally screaming it from the rooftops so that either it doesn't happen again or you learn where it came from. Or you learn that you're dating someone that was really unhealthy for you. And yeah, that came out of you, but that was the unhealthy inner side of you. And now you know not to date someone like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like knowing your parameters and why your parameters are your parameters. I think going through that and evaluating it helps keep me sane. But that's also assuming I'm sane. Right? I mean, no one's fully sane. We're all working on well, it. Doctor says I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're all works in progress. And I I think that going back to the end goal thing, I think that thinking that this like mess inside of us is ever fully cleaned up mm-hmm. is really foolish because the minute you think that more mess comes. I wouldn't say mess because that's like that really implies like a negative perspective. It's just does your house stay clean on its own? No. You have to clean the counters. And then you have to sweep every th- 10 days then you have to vacuum every 15 days then you have to you know every two years ugh, gotta call a plumber to rotor rooter this thing out so if your house has no ego no emotion no nothing and it needs cleaning well, how much more do we need like and that's not it's not like i'm not good enough ugh, i gotta clean up no, you have to clean up to maintain goodness. So you always have to clean. You always have to self-evaluate. You always have to go to a counselor. You always have to talk to your friends about your deep-rooted problems. Because that's the whole point of staying clean, of working cleanliness, of trying to be open and fair and judicious and honest and loving. Maybe I wasn't so loving this month. All right. Why? What happened? And not beat yourself up on the self-evaluation. Not beat yourself up that you have to because the people who don't, we know they don't. And there's a lot of people who don't. They're just miserable. But it's really a lack of evaluation. Mm -hmm. And then thinking that evaluating is negative. Cleaning is negative. I have to clean. There's nothing like you have to make your bed, right? There's no negative aspect to making your bed. No, okay. no, no. I'm trying to get into the practice. I made that face because it's – I haven't stuck to it. Here's the greatest thing I heard from a military guy. Mm. I can't remember which general said it. But he said the best thing that you can do for yourself every single day, wake up, make your bed. said two things are going to happen no matter what. One, 
you're going to start your day off with an accomplishment every day. Boom. Your day's right. If all fucking hell breaks loose all day long and everything falls apart and it's total shit, you come home to a made bed. Okay. You literally win at the beginning and you win at the end. Okay. I think that's a good thing. So you can frame it in your mind almost like a spiritual practice. It's like a tidying up so that you can enjoy life a little bit more. Yeah. It's setting a foundation. Yeah. Okay. If I can make it a deeper thing in my mind, I can get there. Yeah. Making a bed fucking sucks. I meditate every morning. So I guess I could probably make my bed. Yeah. And meditation is like thing, but like making the bed is a physical, tangible accomplishment. Mm -hmm. It just is. Okay. You've convinced me. After so many years of just like haphazardly, sometimes I make it, sometimes I won't. Yeah. My dad is going to be so happy listening to this. He's like, Lauren, you know, I think you should make your bed. Yeah. It's a good practice. I think, I think that Kirk guy is right. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, okay, she finally got it. All right. Well, I'll keep you, the listener, updated on my progress and you as well, of course. Perfect. So I have a couple final questions. Yes. I believe that creativity is deeply linked to the inner child. So if little Kurt, like let's say five-year-old Kurt or however you picture him, was standing in front of you, you're both here in this room, and he was looking at you and seeing all of your accomplishments and what you've done and what you've done to take care of him, what do you think he would say to you and why? If little Kurt was looking at me, I, oh gosh... You can think about it. It's a heavy question. I'm trying to think of like what he'd say. I think he'd probably say, you know, actually, I don't know what he'd say. I haven't thought about it. It's an interesting question because my childhood was shit. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, he might go, hey, good job. Wow. I mean... It's all right. All this shit happened to now at five years old. So you made that happen from that. All right. You're all right. But I don't know. Like. That's probably correct. If that's your first instinct. Yeah. And then what would you say to him and why? Oh, I'd say it's not your fault. Mm. I'd be like, it's okay. Put your head down. Figure it out. It's not your fault. Thank you, Kurt. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and to my guest, Kurt Yeager. For more info on Kurt, check him out at Kurt Yeager on Instagram and at Kurt Yeager fan page on Facebook. Yeager is spelled Y-A-E-G-E-R. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's original music. Follow her at Liz Full. If you like what you heard, go ahead and give the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe and follow it on Spotify. Your support means we reach more ears and hearts. You can follow the show at Unleash Your Inner Creative at You Are Inner Creative on Twitter and join the Facebook group by searching Unleash Creative Community. Find me at Lauren LaGrasso everywhere. And big announcement, Unleash Your Inner Creative officially has an intern and she is amazing. Her name is Kate Cordova and she has dreams of someday becoming a radio host and working in A&R. I actually met her in a Victoria's Secret and there was just something about her and we started talking and found out she was studying communication and it kind of all just fell into place. So you can follow her at CordovaKate27. Go ahead and welcome her to the community. I'm so excited to have her on board and she's just, she's going to be great and really help the show grow. My wish for you this week is that you show yourself a little bit more love and compassion than you're used to. 
that little bit can go a long way. I believe in you. And remember, stay tuned for the creative of the week. Today's creative of the week is Los Angeles-based artist Bridget Moore, a.k.a. Handsome Girl Designs. She mainly focuses on digital illustrations revolving around intersectional feminism, body positivity, and female empowerment. Her design path started as a therapeutic outlet for her own eating disorder, which she struggled with on and off for 15 years. Bridget started drawing as a way to celebrate the beauty of her own body and other women's bodies. I chose her because her work makes me feel better about myself and the world we live in. She's a bright beam of sunshine in the sometimes dark spiral of Instagram, and therefore I highly recommend you give her a follow at Handsome Girl Designs and also shop her exclusive collaboration with Art Sugar. A portion of all proceeds are donated to the National Organization for Women. And that's it for today's show. Have a beautiful week. Love ya.